You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 132. We are going to be talking about the film Tombstone, which came out in 1993. We rented it through Apple TV for $3.99, but if you're willing to sit through ads, you can watch it for free on Prime through the Freebie app. It stars Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxson, Powers Booth, Michael Bean, Charlton Heston, Jason Priestley, John Tenney, Thomas Hayden Church, Dana Delaney, Michael Rooker, and an almost unrecognizable Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, well, this is, must have been one of his first roles, but he was not Sling Blade at this point. No, that very much he did not look anything like himself. It was the voice that keyed us in, right? I Yeah, you said, was that Billy Bob Thornton? And I was just like, no, it looks nothing like Billy Bob Thornton, but the voice is what did it for you. It's interesting. I, as I'm giving the stats of writer-director, I kind of feel like this is the place to kind of tell. This movie almost didn't get made based on a YouTube video that I saw. So Kevin Jar wrote the film. He also did 85's Rambo. In 1985, he wrote Rambo First Blood Part 2. In 89, he wrote Glory. He wrote The Mummy from 1999. So he wrote this film and he was going to direct it. And it was at Universal. And then Kevin Costner was also working on his Wyatt Earp. And he basically called up Universal when he got word about this one, Tombstone, and he said, if you do Tombstone, I'm not doing Waterworld. So Universal said, hey, Kevin, you're not going to get to do Tombstone here at Universal. So they were looking for a distributor, and they called up Disney. And they said, will you please back this film? Will you distribute it? And Disney said, yes, if you cast Kurt Russell as White Earp. Why did Disney want Kurt in the film? I I mean, my only guess is the longstanding relationship with Kurt Russell. I mean, he has been... Right. I was thinking it wasn't because they were trying to make him a headlining star, because he started in Escape from New York, which was, I think, many years previous to this. So I think he'd already transitioned from Disney kind of funny kid, you know movies into leading man status right i i the person telling this story didn't didn't explain that so i don't know that too much detail so kevin jar and everybody started off you know working on this film and the person who was telling me the story i forget his name but it could easily be looked up he was the gentleman who made all of the weaponry and he had a relationship with kevin he taught he told stories of them going up into the mountains and drinking whiskey and shooting guns. And so they were like friends. And so he, Kevin Jar would have this gentleman over to kind of, uh, as he was writing the script, look at these five pages, he would say, and then he'd bring him back over later. Look at these five pages. So, Hmm. so he was on the film. He's a consultant and they filmed four weeks with Kevin Jar, and he very much wanted everything. He wanted it, the look to be like 
a John Ford movie. Ah. But at that time, at least, everything was close-ups. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Instead of the big, expansive vista. They wanted it to be, like, in your face, the people. They wanted it to be about the people. And so Disney fired Kevin Jar after four weeks. So there is four weeks of footage of filming that may never be seen. It's in the Disney vault. Right. And then they hired this guy, George Cosmatos, who ironically was the director of the 85 Rambo First Blood Part 2. So I wonder if that was a little awkward. That <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and he also did Cobra, Leviathan, and he came in. And Michael Bean, in an interview, said that George Cosmatos was a jerk. That Michael Bean watched him treat everybody kind of below the line, as we say, the people who aren't paid as much as the big actors. Um, He was a jerk to him, like move that fatty over there. Like just rude, absolutely rude. Um, Yelled at the crew, like mean. Now he treated Kurt and Val and Powers Booth and Sam Elliott. He treated all of them. He kissed their ass. He said, Michael Bean said that. And he even was, was cordial to Michael Bean. But Michael didn't like the way he treated George or other people. Right. The regular crew. So he, uh, Michael Bean says he walked up to him at one point and Michael told him, go F yourself. Mm. Because. Nice. And so it is lore. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if Kurt, I could not find evidence that Kurt co-signed this, but many, I saw many instances where Kurt, is credited not in the film credit, but people say that Kurt Russell directed the film. Yeah. I had read that independently. I don't, maybe we get the same article, but I doubt it. I had read that, that he had done a lot of the directing work. And this makes sense if, if the nominal director was a jerk to everybody. I think, and I think George had like kind of all these wild ideas and he was also, and remember they had three months to shoot it and one month got eaten up by Kevin Jar's work. And so they said that Kurt and, and Michael Bean said like Kurt and Sam and Val and everybody was kind of like collaborating to keep it on the rails and to keep things going. And like Kurt wrote up shot list and gave it to George. And so I think as on the set, George was directing, but Kurt was kind of like maybe day by day, just keeping the train going so that, because I think George wasn't paying attention to time either. And I think Kurt knew that this film was kind of, if we don't bring this thing to the finish line, it's not going to get out there. Hmm. Fascinating. So let me see, since I interrupted my normal kind of intro, but I felt like that was a good place to kind of talk about that the dp for this film is william a fraker who did 68's bullet and 79's 1941 and then a movie we know well um 1983's war games it was filmed in tucson and sonita arizona it was a hollywood pictures the synopsis for this film is a successful lawman's plan to retire anonymously in tombstone arizona are disrupted by the kind of outlaws he was famous for eliminating. I have three taglines for you. I like the first one. I'm your Huckleberry. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't necessarily describe the film very well, but it's such an iconic line. Gotta mm-hmm. love it. Yeah. Uh, Justice is coming. Mm, bland. Yeah, and that's interesting because I didn't get this as much in watching the film, but in watching the videos on YouTube, they were talking about how this is the most honest portrayal of Wyatt Earp because it doesn't portray him as like, you know, the superhero with the cape, that he was a flawed human. He cheated on his wife. He would cheat in a poker game. He would, you know, he was kind of going to different boom towns trying to rustle up cash through different means that weren't always legal, that he wasn't like, it was more his brother, maybe like Virgil played by Sam Elliott or Morgan played by Bill Paxton, who was maybe more of an honest lawman. Oh, actually it was another brother that I don't think was in the film served under Virgil. So why it wasn't like kind of the, the white hat cowboy that we talk about. Well, we know why it mostly because he lived long enough to move to Hollywood and tell everyone in Hollywood how great he was. Yeah, exactly. All right. The last tagline is every town has a story. Tombstone has a legend. Gonna go with I'm your huckleberry. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say um, in my teen years and growing up, Val Kilmer was not, I don't know. I never really cared for the characters he played or I just wasn't a Val Kilmer fan, but I have come to be a huge Val Kilmer fan and, and I can see why a lot of people reference this portrayal. He did an amazing job in this film and he's the one that says I'm your huckleberry. Uh, absolutely. I think Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday is kind of the, the pinnacle. That's what everyone would me- be measured against if we made this story again. But kind of getting to Val Kilmer, though, after Real Genius, I was a fan. I liked his work there. I think he captured the feel of a place like a Caltech or a Harvey Mudd very well in that character. But it was also kind of a little silly over the top. So I always respect somebody has good comic timing. And this film is kind of the opposite. He doesn't have a lot of really good lines. So a totally different kind of approach. But definitely, I think he's more memorable as Doc Holliday than the other actors are in their roles, sadly. Right. I When we watch Real Genius for the podcast, I liked his character. But I remember when you just said it just now, in high school, I felt he was kind of arrogant and a bit of a dick. Well, his when character I watched it the first time. in Real Genius yeah. was, yeah, he was a bit. And he um, was a jerk in um, uh, Top Gun. Really, I would not say that. I actually think that Maverick was the total weenie. <laughs> Val Kilmer, I thought, did a great job as Iceman of the the overachiever, even for a fighter pilot. He was the best. And this yes, idiot who was not as good, who didn't follow the rules, who endangered everyone around him shows up and thinks he's got the BDE. I don't think so. Okay. You're totally right. But for whatever reason, I mean, we could go into a long philosophical conversation, but we won't. I think teenager me, you know, Maverick was, was the hottie. And so then he was... And the, he was the leading man, so he's the hero. But you're right, he also was a jerk. Yeah, very much so. Yes. Uh, but 
the hero of that film is Goose. Everyone knows that. <laughs> right, right. Okay, we digress. Brief digression. Um, kick us off with your pickup line, and then let's get in this movie, because I have a lot to say. 1879. The Civil War is over, and the resulting economic explosion spurs the Great Migration West. Pretty much. That's just exposition. It doesn't really say anything <laughs> about the plot. <laughs> This movie opens up. We've got all the iconography. We've got good guys and bad guys. It's clear that Powers Booth is not a good guy. Cur- Curly Bill Bronicus. Yeah, he, he's a Curly bad guy. I, I I need to summon the costumer because I'm curious if it was realistic um, at the time for everyone to wear black, all black. Uh, do you know the answer to this? Well, I thought you were going to ask something else because Powers Booth had that red shirt on and then they made a note that all of the cowboys, they call them, which, you know, that term is used so generically, cowboys are good guys and bad guys. But in this film, it very much was kind of describing the bad element. That it would was come. a gang. Yes. And so they were, they had these red sashes tied to their waist and that was not historically accurate. That's just something that the film added, I think, so that we knew who... Because the, there were 80 speaking parts in this film. 80? Eight zero? Eight, yes, eight zero cast members with speaking parts in this film. And so I think with that many people, we had to have a shorthand so that we knew who were the good guys and bad guys beyond right. like yeah. white hats and black hats. So there are... Generally, two two reasons that you have a uniform, right? One is for affiliation. So this is the Crips and the Bloods or whatever. And the other is identification in the middle of combat. You could maybe argue the latter, but I think the former would be a bad idea. You wouldn't want to, like, advertise, I'm a lawbreaker, Mr. Sheriff, right? So that makes sense that they just threw it on there for the film, just like, uh, as far as I understand, the... Uh, the little bamboo pole with a flag on the back of every soldier in Akira Kurosawa movies was him trying to show the audience which side was which, not historically accurate. So that kind of thing, it's one of those things we fudge as filmmakers, right? Because you're right, when you have that many people on the screen, especially in a gunfight where they're cutting quickly, it's important to know who's the good guys and who's the bad guys. Yep. We've got the saloons with poker games, we've got wagon trains, and we open up at the train station where the Earp boys are kind of all meeting. Wyatt right. appears like he gets there first yeah, it with seems, his wife. It, it seems like maybe the ladies had gone earlier and the gents showed up to meet their wives. I, I wasn't exactly clear on the, the timing of the arrival, but that does also bring us to an opportunity to talk a little bit about laudanum, laudanum, whatever they call it. And basically it was just liquid opium. Mm-hmm. So his poor wife was an addict. Right. That's when we learn about Wyatt's wife. She has migraines, I believe is what she's, or a headache. I think she has an opium addiction. Well, yes, but she gave a reason why she <laughs> felt she needed the laudanum. Sure. Wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> you very much, very clearly pointed out when we meet Dana Delaney's character, when she exits the wagon, she's got catch lights in her eyes. She's got the hair halo glow. 
and not just Wyatt with the male gaze, but there's kind of four men standing outside the saloon and they all are. They do the Roger Rabbit eyes. Yeah. Like, rah, rah, rah. Yeah. I, I caught that because to me, this is a return to classic Hollywood. I don't know that I, I was a Dana Delaney fan necessarily. Obviously, she's very photogenic. She's a Hollywood actress. But yikes, they really liked her. The camera crew loved Dana Delaney because that shot was absolutely career-making gorgeous. And it reminded me, and you mentioned the close-ups, of the classic back in the day, and they'd even gel it a little bit, and they'd cut to Deborah Carr or somebody, and you'd just go like, whoa, Nelly, that's an incredible shot. And it, I actually, it's okay, but it's totally different than the rest of the shots, right? Like, it visually looks much different, but you're like, okay, well, we'll let that one go. And then they cut back and forth a few times, and it really, to me, highlights they gave her the Hollywood superstar actress treatment. Uh, so cre- credit to the camera crew. Maybe they held out for extra donuts. I don't know. But they really did a good job on that one. George Cosmatos, the director, was quoted as saying that all the lighting and the mustaches are real, and <laughs> meaning that um, all of the men proudly grew their own mustaches. All the different actors in the film were very boastful about their ability okay. to grow those mustaches. One of the million reasons I could not be an actor, I couldn't grow that kind of mustache if my life depended on it and you gave me 50 years. Right. <laughs> Sorry. And then the lighting he was referring to all the images of lightning that were filmed on location during the monsoon season. However, lighting effects and acting scenes were created with the lightning strikes 250,000 linear units. Huh. I don't know what that is, but there you go. Yeah, well, they did it. Okay. Um, before I move on to writing, is there anything else that you loved about the cinematography of this film? Yeah, I did make a, a couple of notes. One thing I, I, I did like was it, it opened with a lot of stock footage, but then they had some shots of Val Kilmer that they aged yeah. to match, and I thought that matched pretty well. Yeah, it worked. Um, I felt like the opening shots were alluding to the three amigos, which came from seven years previous. The Mexican wedding could have very much been El Guapo. And, but they had to have been aware of that film. There's no way they weren't, um, which uh, is fine. Okay. Maybe they even used the same set and some of the same costumes. I will say that, yes, a couple of the sets did look very familiar because I am, I am quite familiar with three amigos and I believe right. we're... We're talking about it before the, the year is up. If we haven't already, we simply must. Yeah. I famously named a dog Dusty Bottoms once. <laughs> so I like that film. I love that. Um, so also mentioning lighting, and this is a thing where my heart goes out to the camera crew because we see a couple of times, once when um, the Earps first meet Doc Holliday and then also in Doc's death scene, you see as they cut from one actor to the next, the lighting changes very drastically. And so just a reminder that when we're shooting these films, we tend to set up the lighting and the cameras and the blocking for one actor, and they do all of their lines with their their acting partner, that scene partner, doing their lines. But then we reset and relight and reset the camera and everything and then shoot the second actor's lines. And then in edit, we interleave them. The problem is... Sometimes the sun doesn't cooperate or the clouds and you will see noticeably different lighting, especially if you're outside. 
right? Uh, clouds can come and go, and you'll see the difference. And I assume this is one of the the long list of things that I notice and no one else does. But my heart goes out to the camera crew because I'm sure they were kicking their feet and, and, and maybe throwing their coffee cups as they saw the lighting change drastically throughout the day. So, sorry, guys. <laughs> Let's see. My only note, actually, for writing, I did like the... I did like the writing of this film. Like I said, it was lost on me. But now that I look back, the nuance of, you know, I, I like gray area characters. So the fact that they did write it with Wyatt not being and and not only Wyatt, but um, Johnny Ringo apparently was a very well educated man, knew Latin and Spanish and he went to university. So it's interesting that somebody like a Johnny Ringo seemed just like, right. a, you know, just a bad guy with yeah. just a one, one version kind of just bad guy. He has multiple layers. Like he's educated. That's why he trades that conversation with Wyatt in Latin. He understands what Wyatt's saying. Uh, I think it was Doc Holiday, but yeah, the oh, Latin oh, combo. Okay. Yep, yep, it um, was Doc. Which I would not have been able to follow along. I did not study Latin, so credit to both of them. Yeah, I, I think we often tend to, you know, in Hollywood we talk about the white and black hats in cowboy movies especially, but right. we tend to make things fairly black and white when a lot of these characters were maybe not, you know, particularly pure um, or holy. They were willing to resort to rough means to what they felt like do the right thing. And this is a very interesting concept because it's not really explored much in in Westerns. And so we look at another film we've talked about recently, Unforgiven. I don't think you would call Will Money good in any way, shape, or form. But here, the Earp Boys, they're trying to do good, I guess, in their way. But then they are... Com- I mean, they shoot people. <laughs> so there's no real kind way around it. They're causing some fairly severe harm physically to people. Did they deserve it? Oh, okay. But we kind of tend to use juries to determine if people deserve killing. So it is kind of a a bit of a gray area, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe that could be something a film school student could do is is reshoot this from Curly Bill's perspective. Right. (laughs) That's fun. I like it. Well, there's even contention between the brothers, because Virgil right. is trying to be the lawman. He's trying, I can't remember what they called it, but basically you weren't supposed to have a firearm in town. And he said, I'm not even saying like that you can't have a firearm or I'm not saying you can't use a firearm. You just can't carry it. Oh, I wish I could remember what they called it. They had a term for, and so Virgil was, was even, cause um, Wyatt was like, come on, man. Virgil, I have to have, you know, my firearm. And and that's when Virgil said, I'm not even saying that you can't carry it or can't have, or I, you, can, you can't carry it. You can have it. I don't know how you were supposed to, like, I guess you just can't come into town. You got to go well, home first. Well, you turn him in. Oh, okay. You would, uh, in theory, turn him into the sheriff or marshal or whatever. And then you'd get him back. And, yeah, when you leave it. And so presumably they were all relatively unique, so you would need the little paper ticket but maybe they did that too <laughs> right. uh, so pistol um, number seven so please just i was trying to yes and you by saying yes even 
within the family there was strife right but speaking of firearms this does bring up it was a hollywood film in that six shooters and double-barreled shotguns had lots and lots of shots in them without reloading it wasn't particularly accurate in that regard no um though the look of the gun apparently was because this gentleman that i'll put the video in the show notes it kind of this video plays like it's a joke like an snl bit but (laughs) i think it's true but the gentlemen he they did a lot of research and these guns were very much what the uh, the herps actually carried yeah i believe that that would be fairly straightforward to determine because i think at that time there weren't a whole lot of options right uh, i mean there were options of the single action army but there, there was the colt and the remington what have you so that i totally would believe it. and and to be fair to the filmmaker more to the editor right, is when you're trying to edit the scene together, right, they may not have even shot scenes of them reloading, but as an editor, how are you going to mesh that in necessarily with the rest of the action and keep the scene flowing? So it's it's a bit of a nitpick, but it is kind of an important thing when you you see somebody with a double-barreled shotgun just shooting away like there's no tomorrow, it it does bump me at least. Right, but I see your point, like, and you don't have to show every time they reload, but maybe while they're hiding behind the rock and Virgil and Wyatt are talking, or maybe not Virgil, but mm-hmm. Morgan and Wyatt are talking. Well, Morgan wasn't in the okay. I keep correcting myself because I'm realizing I'm, because I think Morgan oh, was thought, Morgan I thought, there. I thought Morgan, Virgil, and Wyatt were there with Doc, I, but I don't know. Because I'm, there's a movie that I watched in film school. It's a black and white movie and it's about the okay corral. Who should, no. It's not who shot Liberty Valance. Right. But anyway, it's a black and white old movie. And I believe, I thought it was Morgan who was killed that kind of spurred the Earps to want to go after the Clantons. Yeah. Because they were angry that they killed their brother. Anyway, yeah. um, I digress. But you could have two cowboys, let's say, right. <laughs> hiding behind a rock and sh- exchanging dialogue and show them reloading just once and then you're like oh when we don't see them they're reloading right so to your point i'm trying to uh, yes and you thank you a technical digression of sorts yes um the first revolvers were cap and ball you had to load each cylinder with powder and bullet and these were cartridge based that was one of the uh, things that made the colt single action army a little bit of an advance although a lot of people would argue whether or not it was technologically the best solution but they could use cartridges however some people like wild bill hickok solved the reloading problem by carrying three or four pistols with them at all times so another option would be bang 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 toss away grab next gun bang 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 now uh, Apparently, also, while Bill said, uh, when asked why you carried so many pistols, he said, I just keep shooting till the other guy stops. Oh um, which, um, that just reminds me of those, those you know, uh, like a, a, in the court case you hear, like, you know, you know, the defendant, you know, has shot in self-defense. Well, why did he shoot 23 times? Well, apparently, while Bill had that approach, right? And I did like a little bit of detail, so credit to, I don't know if it's this weapons guy or the director or even Kurt Russell, but when they're going to go confront the Clintons at the OK Corral, you see Kurt Russell put a pistol in the pocket of his overcoat. And I remember reading this years ago, and I thought it was fascinating. They said that's historically accurate. He didn't carry his pistol on a gun belt 
like we see in the movies, he would just drop it in the pocket of his coat. Wyatt Earp the third was participated in this film and I, mm. it's possible that it was even like a background character or something in addition to like a consultant. Right. You mentioned the old footage and kudos to them for choosing Robert Mitchum. Yeah, fine. To, yeah, to to narrate that part because it just brings more of that historical western kind of culture and iconography to these films. And then I really enjoyed when they all get off the train and they there's the reflection with probably the ticket window yeah, or something. I made a note of that too. That was a great shot. And and Wyatt says, like, stop. Because portraits weren't were hard to get. Oh, they expensive, were expensive and time consuming, yeah. And so to it looked like a portrait and he was kind of like, just stop and take this moment in. I kind of right. liked that scene. And so that mm -hmm. was like... Wyatt kind of being a good guy. I mean, I very much felt the fidelity to his brothers. You know, they were proud to be the Earps. Right. Well, again, big Christmases, lots of grandbabies. Right. Anything in writing and editing that you wanted to bring up? Well, um, from the, 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 the category of perhaps historically accurate, one of the saloons or gambling houses was called the Oriental. Which is a, a name for a region in that time of the world. They called the, the Far East the Orient. Right. However, I don't know if people would be comfortable with that today. There were, again, much like with Unforgiven, there were unexplained, quote unquote, Chinese people in the background. And they were dressed, in my opinion, in very stereotypical clothing. The black tunic and trousers and the white socks with the black ballet slippers. Again, I'd have to talk to our costumers. I don't know if that was strictly correct. But the part that I'm pretty sure we, we really <laughs> need to take a look at is Sheriff Behan has this line where he says he's the head of the, and I quote, nonpartisan anti-Chinese league. And I thought nonpartisan, <laughs> like that this seems was, very. You, yeah. You've taken a you've taken a role a stance. <laughs> yeah, this is a pretty partisan position. And again, perhaps it, it was historically accurate, but it was interesting that he threw that in there. And was that an attempt to show us that the, this character Behan was in uh, kind of a bit of a blowhard because the only people he was taking on were the poor three Chinese guys in the background and the cowboys he let go. Like he had no interest in them as sheriff. He was going to go after these three poor Chinese guys. So again, possibly accurate um, for the time period, but also just uh, a little hurtful. Right. Sadly, I think that goes in line alignment with what I've learned. About, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if that was really accurate, yeah. but still hurtful. So on to kind of costume and sets. Yeah. Val was sick with tuberculosis. His character, right? Not not actual yeah, Val. Yes. Okay, didn't know That's how method true. he went. That's true. Doc Hollywood was sick with um, tuberculosis. And so he was very sweaty and pale throughout most of the film. The actor, Val, asked the art department to fill his deathbed with ice when he laid on it. So not only would he have a little bit of a shake from the, the cold, and that would hopefully show that he is dealing with a great deal of pain, but also... Um, in saying goodbye to his best friend Wyatt, yeah, it would give him a little bit of a an unsteady feeling to be so cold. And that scene actually um, reminded me of I think it's 
Only angels have wings, right? Mm. Where the pilot doesn't want anyone to see him die. Mm-hmm. And he orders him out of the room. Oh, I could cry. No. Yeah. I'm sad. No, that's that's a good point, I think. And then he looks down at his feet and he kind of chuckles because he says cowboys aren't supposed to die with their boots off. And, and he looked down and he realized, oh, my boots are off. All I have to say, boots don't seem to be the most comfortable thing. Like, wouldn't, I mean, I know you're not happy about dying, but I don't know that having the boots on makes any better. That's how tough the cowboys are. I guess so. Again, not a cowboy. Okay, was there any head trauma in this film? (laughs) There there was a lot of um, bullet trauma, but I did make note of a couple bit of head trauma. Um, Virgil pistol whips Ike Clanton after he threatened Virgil at the Oriental the first time. And then Wyatt pistol whips another cowboy after Ike is released from jail. So that was um, apparently a fairly common upgrade beyond punching, but below shooting. And we had some romance. All, th- all three of the uh, boys that we met were married, but I believe... Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie! Well, my first smoochie is the horse's nuzzle after Wyatt and Josephine have their horse race. I thought that was <laughs> subtle from the editor. A horse smooch? A little horse smooch. And then Wyatt and Josephine finally smooch after he comes to see her after HMS Pinafore at the end of the film. There's the big romantic meeting. So I believe that I must have read this in the trivia because I don't remember a video that... There was a scene where Josephine and Wyatt have sex, but they removed it because they didn't want Wyatt to appear quite... Too easy. Yeah. Well, uh, cheating on his wife too easily, yeah. Yeah, I thought I thought maybe I missed it, but I thought after the horse race, it was tension, but not actual waka waka. No, not in this, but there yeah. was a scene that was filmed. Mm-hmm. All right, this one's going to be tough. A driving review? Well, not exactly a driving review, but I do have a vehicular note. Wow. When they show up, the train car off of which Wyatt gets is number 5150. And I think, is the art department run by a Van Halen fan? It has to be. It has to be. Because this was 93, I think that album came out right around there. It was a little before then, maybe a few oh. years before. Well, so even who, more who's so. in charge of, of the art department on this film? So I'd love to track down that person and see if... Uh, uh, are see they if um, are they healer. Sammy or David? <laughs> that would be funny. Uh, Jennifer Hagar was in charge of the art department. All right. Are you ready to go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. This film had a budget of $25 million. It made... Almost two and a half times that worldwide at fifty six point five million. Adjusted for today, that would be like one hundred and twenty five point nine million. So um, good job, Disney! You saved your ass. (laughs) (laughs) The movie that almost didn't get made. And I would think when you factor in video sales and and uh, cable showings, I I bet they did pretty well on this film. Yeah, this is a good one. I liked it. Uh, IMDb gives it a seven point eight out of ten. Critics. On Rotten Tomatoes, give it 72%, while audiences agree with us. It's a good film at 94%. It's over two hours, at two hours, 10 minutes. It's rated R. 
it is a bi- listed as a biography drama history, which makes it sound totally boring, and it's not boring at all. No, it's like an action film. <laughs> it totally is. That's that's right. like the maybe drama. I agree with drama history. I don't know. I just no that that I, title looks sounds like something you'd watch in history class. <laughs> I think if they just said western, you would have been fine. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Val Kilmer was nominated for best male performance and the most desirable. Male. Ooh. I don't know. Not if, in, not in this his. film. I mean, Top Gun era Val Kilmer. Yeah, I he, get it. He's but rather sickly in this Tubercolic? One. Doc Holiday? Ooh. Right. All right, everybody. That wraps up this month of August and this theme. I have two correct guesses for this, but it's not too late to get yours in so that you could possibly be chosen as the winner for the month of August. As to what our theme is, please email me at christy at dodgemediaproductions.com. That link will be in our show notes if you just want a direct link so you know how to spell Christy. Guess what the theme for August is, but never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies.